On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he called to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men." And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So, you know, we are in the book of Luke, and it's, I think, uh, all total, we'll probably have around 45 messages in the book of Luke, which is why we may still be in the book of Luke this time next year. I'm not quite sure about that yet. But out of all the sermons, uh, my favorite sermon title is today's sermon, which is entitled, You Had Me at Fishing. (laughs) Right? You Had Me at Fishing. So... Some of y'all will recognize that as a play from an old movie uh, when you had me at hello, but you had me at fishing. But I will say that the fishing, uh, those of you who fished with me, you have heard me on more than one occasion say there's a reason why Jesus chose fishermen to be his disciples, not aristocrats, not scholastics, not scholars. He chose fishermen uh, to be his disciples. Uh, but the fishing that, uh, you know, I like to do and many of you guys in here like to do with our rods and reels and everything else is not like the fishing that was done back in that day. Their, their fishing would be more equivalent to uh, what we do for shrimp. Uh, you know, we have a shrimping industry here in the Space Coast, big boats that go out in the ocean. But some of you, probably maybe even most of you don't know, there are shrimp in the river. And at certain times of the year, which we're coming up on right now, the, the shrimp begin to run. And I never will forget a few years ago, my buddy calls me up and says, hey, I've heard the shrimp are running near the inlet and they're big. And so I said, let's do it. You know, I'd never done it here in, in this area. And so we got my boat and we got my uh, cast net. I have about a, a 10-foot cast net, weighs about 35 pounds, opens up to like 20 foot. And we went out to the inlet and we, we saw where some boats were and we could see the shrimp on the, the, the bottom machine. And so we got, we anchored up and I jumped up and I started throwing that net, you know. And so I threw the net and pulled back, man, there's a couple of shrimp. This is cool, you know, and kept throwing the net and throwing the net and throwing the net. And after about, you know, the end of the day, we had a, a few gallons of shrimp and I was having a heart attack, man. It was horrible, and I mean, I was at the front of the boat, you know, more Gatorade, more Gatorade, you know. It was, I mean, I had muscles hurting that I didn't even know I had. Uh, it was bad. And, and so I went home and we had a bunch of shrimp. I actually had, I forgot, I was going to include the picture of the Creole, but I didn't want to, you know, make you hungry. I made shrimp Creole out of it and, and we loved eating it. But that night was miserable. 
did not get one lick of sleep. I was cramping all night long. I was getting up. Charlie horses. I mean, I had Charlie horses, the bad ones in the back of your thigh. Have you ever had a Charlie horse between your shoulder blades? That hurts, man. I mean, I was hurting. The next morning, Catherine got up, and as only wives can do, they give their husbands a certain look, and she gave me that look, and she said, from now on, just buy the daggum shrimp at the grocery store. <laughs> it's not worth it. She was right. But I will tell you, that, that experience gave me a whole new sympathy for Peter, for Andrew, James, and John, because he has just spent an entire evening, whole, all night long, on a Sea of Galilee, casting out and deploying a net that was roughly 100 foot long, and weighed somewhere between 500 and 1,000 pounds. And he and his brother Andrew would deploy that net out into a circle. They would wait for a while, and then they would pull it back in by hand, not with winches and things like that. They would pull that thing in back by hand. And of course, on this particular night, time after time after time, like many of those casts, and I would pull back, and it would be nothing but grass from the bottom. There was no fish, no no harvest for what you were looking at. And then to add insult to injury, after a hard night of fruitless fishing, uh, they come to shore and they have to pull that net out and put it over some wooden frames and begin to mend it and clean it and dry it and repack it before the next night's work. And at the end of all of that, they can drag their weary carcasses home and get a little bit of sleep after having done that all evening long. This was hard, back-breaking work. This is the context of this passage this morning. And of course, on this particular day, Peter's normal routine is about to be radically interrupted. Now, even though I've said, you know, you had me at fishing, to be clear, this passage is not about fishing. And this passage isn't about the great catch and the great miracle of all these fish that were caught. The miraculous catch and the fishing serve in this passage as a living parable. You remember what a parable is? A parable is something that's a, an earthly event that actually has a higher, deeper, spiritual, heavenly meaning. And so this whole fishing miraculous catch episode, while yes, it it explains and it shows the, the uh, sovereignty of Jesus over nature and creation. It's actually saying something much deeper, much more important. It's given to us so that we might understand discipleship and what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus. And here's what we learn this morning from this passage, that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be fully devoted to him and his mission. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be fully devoted to him and devoted to his mission. There's three actions that Jesus takes in this passage that help us understand this great truth. In the first five verses, what we see of Jesus is that he explains discipleship and he shows that when, uh, when we follow Jesus, he is going to challenge our understanding of life. Jesus challenges Peter's understanding of life. He challenges our understanding of life when we follow him. In the first five verses, 
There's a couple of requests that Jesus makes of Peter. And the first request, the opening three verses, he is walking along the lake shore. The people of the region are following him. They're great crowds. He's in the the Capernaum uh, and the Gennesaret area. Gennesaret was a big plain that was on the western side of the river. It was a land of fruitfulness. And so the lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee is the lake of fruitfulness. Jesus is being crushed by the crowds, and so he comes along, he sees Peter and and James and John, they're tending their nets, and he says, hey, I need your boat. He commandeers his boat. I mean, what do you think about Peter? I mean, what do you think was going through Peter's mind at that point? Here comes this guy, and he just comes and says, hey, I need your boat. I need to go out and and, uh, offshore a little bit. I mean, was he irritated? Was he frustrated? Was he like shocked at the audacity of this man to, to ask for his boat? I think, though, that in this case, while we might feel that way, not if we didn't know Jesus, Peter was actually grateful. You see, we skipped a few verses at the end of chapter 4. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus and Peter have already interacted with one another. Jesus was ministering in Capernaum, and while he's there, he finds out that Peter's mother-in-law, who lived with him, was deathly ill. She's on death's door. Jesus comes to Peter's house and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. So I'm going to assume that Peter loved his mother-in-law and that he was grateful to Jesus for what he had done in healing her. And so he didn't mind letting Jesus borrow his boat for this temporary uh, need. His second request, and so by the way, in that need, of course, what Jesus does is he, he goes out from shore, he sits down. Remember, rabbis sat down when they brought their sermons, when they taught and preached. So he sits down. Now everybody can see him. Everybody can hear him. He doesn't have to worry about being pushed into the water and crushed by the crowd. First request. Second request, verse 4, when he had finished speaking, when he had finished his day's ministry, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Peter, with this second request, experiences something that is familiar to everyone who comes to Jesus. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus and be his disciple will sooner or later realize that Jesus complicates your life. He complicates your life. Okay? There will be no prosperity gospel this morning. I am not going to blow smoke at you. When you follow Jesus, your life is going to be turned upside down. Uh, he complicates things. He, he, his timing, it, it just seems to be horrible at times, at least from a human perspective, when he makes his call upon you to follow him. And what he asks you to do oftentimes seems impractical or impossible, or nonsensical by human standards. He tells Peter, put out in the deep, let down your nets. You'll notice in the passage, there's an exclamation point at the end of Peter's statement. In other words, Peter, with great emotion, is saying, Master, why would you have us do that? We toiled all night long and did not catch one fish. Now, what's not being said in this passage that you need to understand about fishing in the Sea of Galilee is Peter is also saying, Jesus, you're the carpenter. I'm the fisherman. Stay in your lane, dude. 
because you don't catch fish in the Sea of Galilee in the daytime. You catch them at night. And you don't catch them in deep water. You catch them closer to the shore. So everything that Jesus is telling Peter to do flies in the face of all that Peter knows about fishing, all the conventional wisdom. Jesus is saying, throw it out the door, Peter. Now go out into the deep water where you never catch fish and throw down your nets in the daytime. Um, really? That's what you want me to do? See, Jesus complicates things. He'll ask things of us that don't always make sense. You know, several years ago, I had a guy come to me, asked to have lunch, and we had lunch together. And in that lunch, he said, Jerry, I just feel like there's an emptiness in my soul. He says, in my entire life, it's just, it's just falling down around my ears. And he said this to me. He said, I, I think that I need more God in my life. I need more God in my life. You see, my career has just gone completely off the tracks. My marriage is failing. My children don't even get me started. Everything is going wrong. And so he remembered his upbringing from his mother and father and who had taken him to church and raised him in the gospel. And he had concluded that Jesus is what he, he needed more Jesus in his life, that Jesus could help him get his life back on track. No, we'll forget that. Jesus can help me get my life back on track. What do I need to do? You know, some of you this morning, I wouldn't be surprised if you aren't here with the exact same assessment. There's something missing in your life. Things in your life are not working out the way you thought. Things have gotten off track. Your marriage, your career, your relationships. So I have good news for you this morning. And I have bad news for you this morning. Your assessment is correct. But your expectations are all wrong. They're all wrong. Jesus doesn't give us the luxury of taking him in little doses on our terms so that we can feel better about ourselves and get our life back on track as we define that track. That's not how Jesus operates. He comes in like a tornado in the middle of a mobile home park and turns everything upside down. That's what Jesus does. His expectation is that we will forgo our desires, and our personal ideas of how life is supposed to work. And instead, we will obey him, even when it doesn't seem to make sense from a human perspective. Yes, he will get your life back on track, but it will be a very different and new track. That's what will happen. The new track he puts you on is going to complicate your life. 
It's going to bring you into conflict. It will stretch you and take you in directions that you never imagined. It will challenge you to live opposite of the way conventional wisdom encourages you to live. It will teach you to raise your children and to live your life very differently than your peers. It will cause you to be an outlier at times, and it will certainly complicate and upend your ideas and your dreams and your goals of what it means to have a good life. Jesus is going to completely turn around your understanding of life. That's what it happens when you're a disciple of Jesus. He gives us a different worldview, a different way of looking at life, and the way we think we are to live, he turns upside down in so many different ways. When you follow Jesus, it will inevitably create conflict but it's worth it because it leads to eternal life. Discipleship, we see an aspect, an important aspect of discipleship as we see Jesus challenging Peter's understanding of how life works. If you follow Jesus, he is going to turn your understanding of how life works upside down. He's going to give you a different way of looking at life. Secondly, Jesus honors our imperfect efforts to obey him. Discipleship is a process. The presence of sin is such that even on your best day, when you think you are really obeying Jesus, it is tainted and polluted with sin. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus honors even our imperfect efforts to obey him. Look at verse five again with Peter. So Jesus gives them the instructions. Peter answered, Master, We toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, stop right there. All of you who are parents, you're hearing your child's voice right now. Uh, Let me 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 put it to you like this. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to capture the first word or phrase that pops into your head, and then when I tell you to, turn to the person next to you and share your answer. Here's the question. How would you describe Peter's obedience to Jesus. Ready? Go. I just said a word or a phrase, not a book. Okay. (laughs) All right. Give me some answers. tell Tell me what somebody said to you. What'd you come up with? Reluctant. Excellent. Somebody else? Yes. Grudgingly. Very good. Yes. Faithful. He was. Did you say faithful? Yeah. He ended up doing what he said. Anybody else? Prideful. Yeah. Yes, sir. Shaw. Stubborn. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one for us Presbyterians. Okay. Well, last one. He's amazing. All right. Very good. So, His reluctance, when you think about it, it's understandable. From a human perspective, the math just didn't compute, right? I mean, this would be like, uh, all of you who are engineers who know me, it would be like me walking into your office and telling, oh, hey, here's the problem with this circuit board. You just know that I am talking nonsensically, right? You're not going to listen to anything. So the math just doesn't compute here, but because Jesus is asking Peter 
reluctantly obeys him. And they cast out the nets. Don't you wish that you could have maybe been there and seen the look on Jesus' face when Peter responded, Master, we've been doing this. You know, really? What do you think you would have seen on Jesus' face? Do you think you would have seen irritation with Peter? You think you would have seen frustration, anger with Peter? Or do you think an eye roll? <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, that's what we do to our kids, right? Our kids do to us. An eye roll. Or do you think maybe you would have seen a little twinkle in Jesus' eye? Do you think Jesus might have been was having to fight to not smile? He's trying to hide his little smirk because he knows what's about to happen here. I mean, here's this miracle. He, they put down the nets. This boat, just in Italy, you know, and we got to see what they call the Jesus boat. They've they raised a, a very well-preserved boat from this era of time that was used in the Sea of Galilee by the fishermen. It's about a 27-foot center console with dual outboard. No, it was a, it was, it was a, it was a 27-footer, but, um, and it was about eight foot across from the beam, right? And it was heavy enough. I mean, you think about it. In a future chapter, we're going to see where all the apostles, 12 apostles and Jesus, are on this boat going across the lake in a storm. So it can carry a lot of weight, but on this particular day, the, 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 the catch of fish was so heavy, they struggled. The nets were breaking. James and John come out with their boat, and the passage tells us that both boats were in danger of sinking from the weight of the fish. What an incredible miracle. And, and by the way, it is perfectly legitimate to go there by way of application as far as Jesus' sovereignty over all of creation. But in doing that, I think we miss an important gospel application in this miracle as it relates to discipleship. And this entire passage is more about discipleship. And that application is this, it's inevitable. That Jesus, as his disciple, that Jesus is going to ask something of us that will stretch our faith to the breaking point and to which we will reluctantly obey. It will happen time and time and time again. So for some of us, Jesus is going to call upon us to open up our home to our neighbor next door or to a coworker and his family, a person that we would normally maybe not hang out with and do life with, but Jesus intends to make that person one of his own and use us to do it. For others of us, he's going to, through the Holy Spirit, we're going to be convicted to offer up the olive branch to that family member time and time again who there is a breach in the relationship until finally Jesus restores the relationship and the family unit is reconciled. Every one of us, if you are a disciple long enough, you will experience the tension of the inner compulsion of the Holy Spirit to begin to, to give of your time to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, to serve the kingdom of God here at Covenant Church, to give of your financial resources, to build the kingdom here in Palm Bay through our church and around the world through different ministries that catch your heart and you feel this desire to obey what God says, to give of your tithes and offerings. And that is extremely hard. If you're a Christian, and you've ever experienced that inner reluctance to write the check, raise your hand. Be honest. Yeah. 
We all feel that at some point in your life, as you begin the journey of discipleship and you begin to obey what the Lord says and the stewardship of time and treasure and talents, you're gonna be stretched and you're gonna, okay, (laughs) oh, you say so, Lord. That's what it feels like on the inside. For some of us, we feel that when we think about the call to disciple our kids. I know I, I often felt a very strong temptation to kind of, you know, farm out the discipling of my kids to the children's ministry or to the Christian school. A lot easier to let them do it. A lot more inconvenient to take the time to be the chief discipler of my children. There's so many ways that this happens. And sometimes we don't obey at all. And then when we do obey, it's very reluctant. It's begrudging at times. It's slow it's like, really? Oh, are you sure, Jesus, I should put the nets out? Aren't you glad, church, that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant that abounds with grace? That even when we obey him imperfectly, Jesus responds with grace to our imperfect obedience. And again, on our best day, Our obedience is always going to be tainted and polluted by our sinfulness because we are so radically corrupted by sin. Yet Jesus uses imperfect people with imperfect obedience to accomplish his purposes and to demonstrate his miraculous power. And so this is great news for for everybody here who will sluggishly come back at four o'clock this afternoon to disciple a screaming group of third graders? This is good news for you. For those of you in the heat of the summer, stand out in that parking lot and smile while you're sweating off five pounds so that newcomers and members alike see a friendly face first thing. For all of us who have been tempted to maybe mail it in and call in sick on small group night, let somebody else, because you just would like to have a Wednesday night off for a change. Or you have to get up at 5.30 in the morning to come here and set things up. Or, you know, the Baptist beat you to Cracker Barrel because you stayed and had to tear it all down, you know? I mean, all of us who have worked in the ministry of God's kingdom, there are those times when you go into it and it's like, you ever, you ever felt that way on the inside? Can we just be honest with each other this morning? Where you're just like, sure to use it. Little little break here, you know. Aren't you glad that Jesus responds to all of that with grace? We should rejoice over the grace that Jesus gives us, even with our imperfect obedience, our hesitant obedience. And if this is true about our service, it's even more true when we think about our imperfect obedience in the realm of sanctification and holiness. When we're honest about our sin struggles, this passage should cause us to worship our Lord Jesus. Young people, if you're discouraged with your struggle with sin, I want you to know this morning that every older, more mature Christian in this room has experienced the same struggles you're experiencing. Every one of us understands the frustrating cycle of victory 
and defeat. Every one of us understands the discouragement that comes about because there are those times in your life where you experience more defeat than you do victory. Every one of us knows and has experienced the temptation to just chuck it in and give up because we can't do it. Every one of us who are further down the line know what you're going through. Teenagers, young adults, there was a time in my life when I was your age when I came this close to just walking away from the Lord and from his church. I was so discouraged by the disconnect between the faith that I professed to believe and the sin that I would struggle with and the tension inside of me, and and I could not stand the hypocrisy of it all. I said I was one thing, but on any given moment, I was living opposite of that. And that, that tension, that disconnect grew so strong in my life that I, I literally just came this close to saying, okay, I'm just done. I, 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 this must not be true. It, nobody could do this. See, what was happening to me at that moment as I was listening to my enemy, the devil, the devil wants you to focus on your imperfect obedience and your involvement in sin, and he encourages you to cover up those struggles, to keep it to yourself, to not share what's going on. It's the devil who blinds you to the grace that is found in Jesus. It's the devil who wants you to focus on your disobedience instead of setting your eyes on the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. You see, Satan always wants you to look inward and fills you with that shame. Jesus wants you to look at him and his perfect obedience and to live in the grace that he can give you and only he can give you. And when you focus on his obedience, realizing that his obedience covers over every single sin you have ever committed or will ever commit, that God is going to accept you and receive you because he loves you in Jesus Christ. It frees you from that burden, that crushing burden of perfection because only Jesus can be perfect. And it gives you the freedom to forgive yourself as Heavenly Father has already forgiven you. And he gives you the courage and the motivation to rest in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if that's where you are this morning and and your perception of Christianity is a burdensome weight that is just crushing you, you're listening to your enemy, the Satan, instead of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And you're looking at your disobedience instead of his obedience. Jesus delights in accomplishing his will through the imperfect people with imperfect obedience who do not, and catch this, who do not hide their sinfulness. And we see this in the final application this morning where Jesus commissions us to make more disciples. In verse 8, Simon Peter He sees this miraculous event. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Let's stop right there for a moment. Peter's humble confession of sinfulness and need to Jesus is at the heart of true discipleship. This confession right here 
If you wanna know what discipleship, where discipleship begins, where our journey with Jesus Christ begins and how it continues, it's right here in this confession of Peter. Humble reliance upon Jesus. Seeing Jesus for who he is, looking at ourselves and seeing the difference and then throwing ourselves humbly at his feet to worship him as, as Lord, to depend upon him for his grace, this is where discipleship begins. It's foundational to following him. It's foundational to the beginning of our journey. It's foundational to the end of our journey and everything in between. Our journey with Jesus starts with this hard attitude, and it continually characterizes those who are following him. Let me, let me put it a, a different way. If this humble confession of sinfulness and need is not present in your life, you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You don't know him. Because Jesus is God. He's Lord of everything. He rules supreme. And when you know him, when you come in, in the Bible, from beginning to end, when the people of God would come into the presence of God, what did it do to them? They're undone. They're unraveled. Think about Isaiah when, when he comes and he understands who God is and he sees him. He just falls on his face before him and he says, I am undone. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips and unclean heart. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. This is what you see with Peter. You see, when you know Jesus, you in turn begin to know yourself and you're undone. Jesus complicates us, doesn't he? Complicates everything for us. It's ignorance is simpler. You know, being, being blind and dumb and stupid about how we really are is actually simpler in the temporal perspective. It's just condemning from an eternal perspective. That's the issue with it. But when we come into contact with Jesus, he begins to change our self-perception so that we recognize our sinfulness. We recognize our need for his grace and his mercy. And this humble realization is the start of our journey with Jesus and our companion all along the way until we come to glory. Oh, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So our, our hour is coming to an end. So let me just share some quick observations from these final verses. First of all, the miracle of the multitude of the fish. As I said, it's not about the fish and the great multitude of fish. It's a parable telling us something more important. And one of the first things it is telling us, it's reminding us that Jesus is sovereign over the catching of men and he intends to catch a great multitude that no one can count. And that multitude is going to be from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And at the end of all history, this mass of humanity will fall at his feet and worship him as Lord and God of all. This is what this tells us. 
He comes to Peter and he says, you will be catching men. Not you might catch some men. I sure hope you catch some men. You know, there's a probability that at least one in 10 might actually believe what you said. Absolutely not. Jesus is certain. He's absolutely assured. You will catch a great multitude of men. How can he be so sure? Because he is sovereign over salvation and everything about it. Secondly, Jesus works through his disciples to make more disciples. He is sovereign over all salvation, who comes to him in repentance and faith, and in the same level of sovereignty, he has chosen to involve us in this great work of redemption. He's chosen to make us his instruments of saving power. Do you realize what an honor that is, church? How, what an honor it is for us that he places upon us the same call that he placed upon the apostles. The primary way that we make disciples is to follow Jesus in the model of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, teaching the word of God to those who need it. For many of us, this starts in our homes. We make disciples, as disciples, we make disciples by raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, of teaching them the scriptures, of bringing the gospel to them, both in word and in deed as we live it out before them. So for many of us, we obey Jesus's command by simply turning to our very own families. But that's, there's secondary means. There's other ways that we make disciples you think about all that we do here at this church and think about all the ministry that's going on. We're not going out to these fields to play soccer to play soccer because soccer is literally the dumbest sport in the world. Okay? I mean, come on. <laughs> We're going out to these fields to teach these children to play soccer. So as disciples, we can make disciples and introduce them to Jesus. Most of us will never go to India and, and lead a, uh, someone from India to Christ, but all of us can give above, above our tithes to missions and help plant churches through ministry partners in India where disciples are making disciples. And none of us are going to go to Africa in all likelihood and, and lead some African child to Christ, but 500 and some odd little Samaritan Christmas boxes going out from our church is a secondary way that disciples make disciples, or out in the front getting a, a thing off the Christmas tree for the, the children of the prisoners that are in our jail. There's a multitude of ways that we can be involved as disciples making disciples, but don't miss the point that this is what Jesus has commissioned us to do. To be a disciple is not to simply come in here together and worship God or to gather together in small groups and learn God's word together. To be a disciple is to be the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus to those who need Jesus. And that's our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. And for all of us who are intimidated by that, who are nervous, who are afraid, Jesus emboldens those who are humble before him. He says to Peter, it's hard to ever think of Peter not being bold. 
Yet to this bold man, Peter, he says, do not be afraid. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. How can it be done when most of us naturally are hesitant and afraid to share our faith? It goes right back to the starting point of discipleship. We humbly cry out to Jesus and we confess our inadequacy. We confess our fears. We confess our anxiety. We profess our desire to be used by him and we surrender ourselves to him and we trust him to fill us with his power through the Holy Spirit. This humble dependence, Jesus delights in working through humble, dependent disciples. Let me leave you with this. John Piper, in talking about this idea, puts forward that it's actually a prerequisite to being used by God. He says this, cocky witnesses contradict the message of grace. Jesus is looking for humble, dependent disciples whose obedience will be imperfect, whose fears will be real, but who are honest about it and throw themselves at his feet. You are the kind of disciple Jesus will use to bring others into the kingdom. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you don't require perfection from us because you have been perfect in our place. We thank you that you will use a group of inadequate people like ourselves who don't have all of the gifts and all of the abilities and all of the qualifications that even our world might say somebody should have. But what we do have is we have you. We have your spirit living within us. Help us to be a church of disciples who boldly, faithfully leave all behind in the effort to make more disciples. May this calling that you've placed upon our lives be a priority to us above so many of the other things that this world puts before us. In your name I ask, amen.